I'm about to study the incorruptible, inerrant word of God. I open my heart to God's message. I humble my mind to his wisdom, and I rest my hopes on his grace. I will accept its rebukes with repentance, rejoice in its truth by faith, and trust in its promises that can never fail. I can be what it says I can be. I can do what it says I can do. I can change what it says I can change as I trust in his grace and spirit. I covenant with God that I am ready to learn, that I am ready to grow, and that I am ready to change as I hide his word in my heart and honor Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. All right, God bless you. I want to pray over Pastor Gary. Father God, I pray that you would bless this man right now. Father, just pour out your spirit on him. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. I accept that. You may be seated. And uh, any children need to go to their children's time can go now uh, with the children's ministry team. And then uh, also Kelly's discipleship class, you're free to go as well. Well, good morning. It's good to see you here in the second service. We have been in a series called uh, The Kingdom Generation. And just by way of reminder, I have been started off this series talking about some of the things that are becoming clearer to us in biblical prophecy because of some of the rediscoveries of the true biblical calendar and the Dead Sea Scrolls and so on and how we are now starting to understand that we really are very close to the end of this age and the beginning of the what we would call the Sabbath age of the millennial reign of Christ. And I believe that there are some challenges for us as Christians that we need to meet successfully because God has called us to be overcomers. And too many Christians today are pessimistic, but it's time for us to get optimistic, not because everything is going to be rosy and beautiful, but because we have a God that overcomes whatever comes our way, right? Well, about five of you believe that. That's good. <laughs> okay. And we do believe that. But we've been talking about if we are in the final decades of this age before the coming of Christ, that this is going to be the most trying period of time as it ramps up that the world has ever known. It's going to eventually result in a one world state, a one world government. And we know that ultimately the Antichrist will end up at the head of that and will demand worship and will demand the taking of a mark and all of those things. Christians going to have to be the kind of people who know how to stand their ground because they're not living just for this life, but they're living for the eternal life, the life that goes on forever and ever. And they're willing, even if necessary, to lay down this life for the sake of that one that Jesus has given us. The one that Christ has given you is the important life. It's the eternal life. And that's the life that you must cling to, even if it means the releasing of your earthly life. But this morning, I'm going to talk to you from the subject, uh, excuse me, talk to you from the subject called Grace Pilgrims in the Wilderness of End Time. Grace Pilgrims in the Wilderness of End Time. And I think the term Grace Pilgrims will, I'll try to, that will be explained as we go through this uh, study together this morning. And what I'm going to do is I will at certain points in the message try to define the grace pilgrim for you. 
But mostly I'm going to try to exemplify that for you through stories about grace pilgrims. In fact, that's where we'll start this morning. It had taken several years more, or it would take several years more, and some very stern dealings with the arrogant Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Before Nebuchadnezzar would realize that Yahweh's place as the one and only true God and the only one that needed to, the only one that deserved worship should be recognized. Now, after Daniel revealed to him his dream and the statue of that dream, and if you remember, that statue was a statue which talked about the whole of time. And you remember that Nebuchadnezzar learned that there was a head of gold which represented he and his kingdom. And then there was the other uh, forms of that, which started with the chest of silver and then the belly and thighs of bronze and the, eggs, the legs of iron and then its feet mixed with iron and clay, which come all the way down to our time. And, but Nebuchadnezzar, when Daniel revealed that dream to him and interpreted it for him, was astonished. And he honored Yahweh, that was the term used in the Old Testament for God, that's his name, he, he honored Yahweh as the great God who is a revealer of secrets. However, he didn't turn loose of his polytheism. He still, he put Yahweh way up there somewhere, but he still believed in many gods and goddesses, and he was still hanging on to his pantheon of gods. What is more, like most pagan kings, King Nebuchadnezzar also still imagined that a great monarch like himself, which had been blessed with power over people, who had obviously been blessed by the gods, that they had allowed him to conquer people and subjugate people. And therefore, he had likely been selected to become a god himself. Most monarchs in the ancient world aspired to being gods. They wanted to be worshipped, and they felt that the more people who worshipped them, the more it proved that they were to become a god and to join the pantheon of gods. And so, inspired by the fact that he was the great head of gold in the statue, Nebuchadnezzar decided to ignore all the other uh, features of the statue, and he decided that what he would do is he would make a statue to claim his own immortality and his place among the gods. This was not unusual for kings to do. And so we read in the third chapter that after this dream had been defined, that Nebuchadnezzar decided to make a statue that was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Now that's very, very tall. Think how tall that is. I think the worship center goes up maybe to, if you're going way on up to the ceiling up there, almost 30 feet. So think about three times that high. That's a big statue. 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. And he had the, and he, he decided the whole statue is going to represent me. And I don't doubt that it was made to look like Nebuchadnezzar. We learn from archaeological digs that there's lots of representations of Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian digs because he liked his image everywhere. And it is interesting that uh, he had this whole statue overlaid, the whole huge 90-foot statue, with, with solid gold. It was overlaid with solid 
gold. It must have glistened something incredible in the sunlight. So, we are told in the historical accounts that he did this, and then he placed this statue on the uh, large plain of Dura, just southeast of the, Babylon, the city of Babylon. And uh, in fact, we have actually found large foundations in that area, which look like it was made for the foundation for a large statue. And that was discovered by archaeologists in a number of years ago. And so, if you remember correctly, that he determined to have a dedication of this statue and a worship service for this statue. And he invited everyone in the province of Babylon. Now, his kingdom was divided up into provinces. And you will recall that when Daniel interpreted his vision, which was recorded in chapter 2, that he promoted him to be the chief of the wise men of Babylon. Now, this was a very prestigious and powerful position. You literally was the right-hand man of the king. You were there to advise him on almost everything. He listened to you because you were considered to be brilliant and you were considered to be literally in touch with the gods. Now, Daniel claimed to be in touch with only the one true God. But you'll remember that Daniel, when he was uh, appointed as the chief of the wise men, that he had requested that his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, we know them by their Babylonian names best, that they would be promoted and made administrators over the whole of the province of Babylon. And that included the city of Babylon. And it says that they would administrate in Babylon, but Daniel, to be near the king, would stay in the palace. Now, what that means is, is that though Nebuchadnezzar had a small palace in Babylon and it was beautiful, nonetheless, he had a massive, we know this now, we've uncovered it, a massive administrative palace several miles away from Babylon. And that's where Daniel stayed because he was to have access to the king at all times. So when Nebuchadnezzar called for this dedication worship service of this great statue, Daniel was nowhere near, or he likely would have been in the third chapter along with his three friends uh, facing the same dilemma, but he wasn't there. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were administrators over the province of Babylon and the Babylonian city, were called along with all the other administrators and satraps and governors and so on, and all the people of the region to come to this worship center that had been created for this huge uh, dazzling statue. It had been prepared not only if, uh, a place for a big orchestra to play, it was going to be an impressive worship center. Like we use music, Nebuchadnezzar is going to use music. going to use music to help everyone kind of get in the mood to worship him, his statue. Also, because worship in the ancient world wasn't considered, in this case, a uh, voluntary thing, uh, there were also furnaces there that were used to get rid of anyone who refused to worship. So if you refused to bow down and worship his statue, Nebuchadnezzar would throw you into the furnace and burn you alive to get rid of you. Because if he could get your worship, he believed that the more worship he got, the more likely he was to join the pantheon of gods. And anyone who wouldn't do that was detracting from his claim. And so, the moment came, he had the orchestra play, 
so to speak, start the worship music, and everyone was to bow down. But you remember the story. There were three who would not bow down, and that was the three administrators of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow to that golden idol, representative most likely of King Nebuchadnezzar himself. So they were tattled on by the other administrators, and they were brought before the king. Now, the king was fond of them. He knew their relationship to Daniel. And so the king uh, wanted to give them another chance. Normally, you would just be thrown in the fire. You didn't bow down? Okay, into the fire you go. But he wanted to give them another chance. Now, the furnaces were already burning. It was a way of kind of intimidating people to do what they were told to do. And so the king says to Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you another chance. And here's what he says to them. Now, when you hear the sound of the music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. In other words, everything would be kosher. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Notice that last statement. Nebuchadnezzar is all about talking about being a God. He's claiming immortality for himself. And he's saying, you're not doing this because of your God. And he's saying, look, I've got such power and I've got such power over your life that if you don't do this, I'm going to throw you in the furnace and there's no God going to come and save you. I'm the one who has the power. Well, they were not intimidated. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king this way. They replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If you throw us into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand. What did they just say? Our God is so great, he can countermand any command you make. It doesn't matter what you you decree. Our God is able to rebuke it. Our God is able to overpower you. That was not something that was safe to say to a pagan king. But then they went on to add something even more. But even if he, God, does not, in other words, save us, we want you to know, king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So what they are saying is no deal. You do, it doesn't matter how many times you have the orchestra play. It doesn't matter how much worship music you put on. We're not bowing to this crazy statue. No deal. Well, the king became enraged. He, he lost his mind, literally, is what it's saying. Because his authority was being challenged, which no pagan king could allow. Because if you challenge, he allowed someone to challenge you, then soon everybody would be challenging him. And they were impugning his claim to godhood, which is the whole purpose of this event. He had just inferred that no god could save them from his power. And they've just said, oh yeah, our god can. He can overrule you. The king's rage boils over into manic fury. And he commands something. Now, if you remember the story from Sunday school, if you were a Sunday school child and heard the story of the three Hebrew children. They weren't children, they're men. They're grown men with families. They probably left wives and children when they left home that morning. And they knew that it was likely to be a difficult day. And they may or may not see their wives and children again. But these are men. And 
that in this particular situation, uh, the king says, I want you to stoke these furnaces to the maximum. Now, you remember that it says in the scriptures, they use the word, make them seven times hotter than before. The number seven is just a word which means ultimate, absolute, perfect, complete. So, as hot as these furnaces can be made without melting them down, make it that hot. I want these things roaring. And that's what they did because the king is absolutely manic. He is so furious. And so... Once the furnaces were prepared, he ordered soldiers to bind up the three administrators. And then it says his fury was so urgent that he commanded them, take them, throw them in the furnace now. Well, there was so much heat coming from the door of the furnace, waves of heat, that it could literally, if you breathe that hot uh, heat coming from there, it would sear your lungs instantly. And these soldiers, though, are being told by the king, do it now. Get them into the furnace. Well, they obey because they know if they don't, he'll kill them anyway. So they do the best they can to cover their faces, I'm sure, and they're trying to get, and they get up close enough to push these three men into the furnace, but a wave of heat comes out and it sears their lungs and they drop dead on the spot. But the three young men go into the furnace because they're pushed into the middle of those burning coals and tar, whatever it was. But what is interesting is that in a few moments, they're standing up, they're walking around, they seem to be totally unharmed, and what is more, there's not three of them, there's four of them. And Nebuchadnezzar, who has been furious, suddenly is stunned into astonishment. And he looks at everybody and says, didn't we put three in there? Yeah. Well, I don't see three. I see four. And then he says, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. <laughs> What's he saying? He looks supernatural. The point is, is that God was countermanding King Nebuchadnezzar's order. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar says is so entranced by what's going on, he makes his way as close as he can without getting burned to the door of the furnace and begins to call out. And here's what he calls out. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, perfects and governors, these are the rulers under Nebuchadnezzar, and royal advisors crowded around them. They're all crying. They can't believe what they're seeing. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies. In other words, there's no burns on them whatsoever. Now notice this little addition. Nor was a hair of their heads singed. That's interesting. The first thing that would go is your hair would go whoop. You know, especially if you ladies, you got a little hairspray on it, boom, boom, it's gone, you know. And, but the hair of their heads was not singed. Their robes were not scorched. Their clothes, there's no scorching even on the robe. And there was no smell of fire on them. You couldn't even tell they'd been in that tiry, oily, fiery pit because they had been completely protected. Isn't that amazing? It's interesting that God mentions all these things because... These men become 
great examples of what a grace pilgrim is. You see, they are grace pilgrims who are exalted beyond their circumstances. The circumstances are a blazing furnace. They're exalted by God to have victory over that furnace and the king who had commanded them to be put in there. Edward Miller gave us the term grace pilgrim to define someone who is preserved by God in beauty, health, and blessing in the face of difficulties, not because they are spared difficulties. A lot of people think, you know, the way God is going to bless me, he just needs to spare me all my difficulties. He needs to spare me all my troubles. No, the Bible often says that God will allow you to go through the same troubles as anyone else. He will just give you grace to come out of it without even the smell of smoke on you. That's what a grace pilgrim is. You see, in the church, they are those followers of the Lord Jesus who don't exhibit the signs of a hard pilgrimage, so to speak, even though they have been on a hard pilgrimage. They've been through one. You see, their brow is not set with heavy furrows. Their spirit does not manifest regret or weariness or defeat. They have faced every single test and trial others have had to face and have risen above it all by the grace of God. As we will see, they have even learned to suffer because of others' failure and disobedience and still not complain. Their faith in God lifts them above mere circumstantial perspectives and mere circumstantial controls. This is because they have learned the power of living in the grace of wholehearted trust in God and His promises. Now, this one characteristic, wholehearted trust, take note of that. We're going to meet it again. That's their key characteristic. Changes the outcome of their whole life and the life of everyone who imitates and follows them because they, they create disciples. They create followers. Think of how powerful down through history Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these three men have become as examples of God's grace and God's power to rescue us even in the worst of situations. They face circumstances you and I cannot imagine facing. Maybe someday Christians will face it again. We don't know. There are Christians today around the world facing horrible situations. But the point is, is that they faced death. They faced a horrifying death, and yet they overcame it. Not even the smell of smoke on them. So they are grace pilgrims. They did not get to skip the blistering, roaring furnace of fire, but their faith in God did enable them to find God's supernatural protection even while being shoved into the center of it. They were not spared from a fiery trial, but preserved amidst a fiery trial. Now think about it. God is always commending people like this. Sometimes, like the, these three men, they overcome the fire and the tribulation. They, they just completely escape it because God gives them victory over it. Other times, God allows people even to give their lives, and yet he says they win. Because, you see, God's calendar of events goes beyond our present time. It takes in not just the visible world, but the invisible world. 
And we must learn as Christians that we live not just in the visible world, but we live in the spiritual world. For we have been made spiritually alive with Christ. And we are going to live forever and ever beyond mere time. And therefore, we should always gauge who wins and loses, not in what is seen in the here and now only, but in what is seen eternally. Think about the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Let me just give you a portion of it because it's talking about those who had great faith. And here's what it says. It's talking about, it says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions. There's Daniel probably in the lion's den. Quenched the fury of the flame. There's our three guys in the furnace. And escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. I've had people ask me, what does that mean, a better resurrection? Well, what they're saying here is others were tortured and refused to be released. In other words, someone said to them, if you'll just give in, if you'll just do what we're asking of you, if you just renounce your God, we'll, we'll let you go. We'll release you. But, but what would be the resurrection they'd get from that? The resurrection to damnation. But they said, no, we refuse because we're going, we want the better resurrection, the resurrection to life. And so they gained a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, humiliation, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. Tradition tells us that the prophet Isaiah was sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Now, here's what you can't miss in that list. Is that some of them were victorious in the present. They overcame the flames. They overcame the lions. They overcame the armies. Some gave their life testifying to their allegiance to God. And the verdict is that they were all commended for their faith. They're all winners every last one of them. Do we have that kind of perspective? It's kind of like we've whittled down winning to something very narrow. If God takes away all my problems, and if God gives me an easy time, and if I can be a couch potato Christian, and kind of just kind of, you know, slouch my way into heaven, then I believe I'm really being blessed, and God's really protecting me. Well, their church down through history, most of it would not recognize that attitude at all. Now, we need to understand that these people are eternal grace pilgrims. And when the new creation curtain goes up, they'll be shining in glorious uh, manifestation of what they are and what they have become because of their faithfulness, their wholehearted faithfulness to God. Now, this wholehearted faithfulness, excuse me, I'm a little fat. This wholehearted faithfulness Trust in God, no matter the situation, is the common denominator, as we're going to see, in all of God's grace pilgrims. And it's through this wholehearted trust that any Christ follower 
can become a grace pilgrim in their own situations, even if those circumstances contain, so to speak, flaming furnaces. Jesus says to the church in the past and in the present today, I want you to notice one from the letter to the church of Smyrna and Revelation. Notice this. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give, your, give you life as your victor's crown. In other words, eternal life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he says to the churches. That's plural, notice. The one who overcomes and is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. Now, this is a letter that is addressed to the church at Smyrna in the Apostles' Day. John the Apostle is writing Revelation. Jesus Christ is dictating this through him. This is the words of Jesus. But notice that when Jesus in every letter comes down to applying it, he says that you must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the what? The churches, not just the church at Smyrna, but all the churches. He's addressing the churches for all time. And that's what the book of Revelation is. It's about how God marches down through time and ultimately the culmination will be the kingdom of God victorious. And so this is addressed to us as well. And we're going to talk about the church at Smyrna just a little bit more just in a few moments. So the God who loves grace pilgrims, who is the God of all grace is the God who provides for them to obtain the grace to transcend their challenges, as Jesus is saying here. Be faithful, even if it means being faithful unto death. In fact, we're told that this God, who is the God of grace, is still on the job, and he has declared that the eyes of Yahweh, remember that's the true name of God in the Old Testament, the eyes of Yahweh search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed, who are wholehearted in their commitment to him. That's a grace pilgrim. Now, last week, Pastor Steve reminded us so effectively that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And joy is not circumstantially based. It is something that is produced in us by the hope that we have and by the the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we cannot have a hope that will give us that joy unless that hope is anchored beyond the horizons of this world. Only a hope anchored in the unshakable supernatural nature of our unconquerable Redeemer, who is for us and not who is for us and not against us, can give us and sustain us in joy. We're going to need the supernatural grace of God to transcend this present world, I believe, in the decades ahead of us. We need to leave an example of faith to be followed for the generations that are coming behind us. We need to educate them as Christians, as we have been saying. We are wrapping up our educational uh, opportunities. We'll be talking more about that as we're continuing to work on that. But the point is, is that it needs to happen in the family. It needs to happen with every father and every mother becoming a grace pilgrim in the life of their children and their children being raised to be saturated with grace because they are channels of grace to the world around them. You see, they need to see us model it or they will never know how to embrace it. I believe that the cultural war ahead of the church will only be won by grace pilgrims. I believe that's what we're facing. Now, let me talk just a moment about one of the definitions of a grace pilgrim. 
A grace pilgrim is a supernaturally connected human living in a fallen natural context. Now notice my asterisk. This is a God-connected human. When I use supernatural here, I realize that and that's a more generalized term. And there are people who are supernaturally connected, but they're connected to the wrong supernatural. They're connected to evil supernatural deities, uh, uh, fallen gods and, and beings. But we were here talking about being connected to the true and living God. And that's what a grace pilgrim is. Now, if I were to ask all of you what grace is, I, I know that most of you could define it. We've talked about it many times. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. God giving you what you can never earn or deserve. And God has done that by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to purchase for you what you could not do for yourself. That is salvation and your sins being forgiven. And he rose from the dead so that he could send his spirit to live in you and transform you. That's all grace. You see, you don't deserve Jesus coming and dying for you. You don't deserve Jesus rising from the dead and crushing death for you and sending his spirit inside of you so that you can come alive and not be dead but be connected in living relationship with God. But that's his grace to you. All of that is grace. And so we must understand to be grace pilgrims that we need to be a, someone who, uh, who is willing to let that grace work in us to make us like the Lord Jesus who is the ultimate model in himself of a grace pilgrim, the supernatural God in flesh and human form. Now, Jesus is presently working in what we would call a power under approach of loving conquest of human hearts. You know, a lot of people say, why doesn't God just come and rend the heavens and, and kill all the, you know, and destroy all the wicked and just immediately end it all? Well, one day he will because he will know the time has come when that needs to be done. God is not going to be light on wickedness and evil. One day he will destroy it from his universe completely. But he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. So right now, God is working to do something more powerful than just destroying the wicked. You do realize there will be a day when Jesus will say, enough, and God the Father will say, enough, and Christ will come, and Antichrist armies will be gathered, and he will already raptured his saints, and we will be gathered with him, and then he's going to come back. And it says, we don't fight. Jesus does all the fighting. He just simply says, by a sword coming out of his mouth. What does that mean? He just speaks a word, and whew, they're toast. That's how powerfully he created the universe with a word. He's going to destroy wickedness in Satan's army with a word. Boom, it's done. But here's what's important to remember. It only takes a small whisper for Jesus to destroy the wicked. But it takes great, incredible love and power to redeem a soul and change a person's mind and heart and make them a child of God who will live with him forever in heaven. And that's what we're involved in now. That's why we are to be grace pilgrims. Grace pilgrims are saturated, saturated with grace because they are channels of grace to a world that needs it. They're quick to forgive. They're quick to love. They're quick to serve. They're quick to reconcile because they're not about themselves. They're about the kingdom of God. They're about wholehearted commitment to 
to him. That's what we must become in the decades ahead. That's what our children must see in the decades ahead. We need to be God-connected humans, a supernaturally connected human living in a fallen natural context. So, grace pilgrims are created when believers are wholehearted in their trust and obedience to God and his kingdom. That wholehearted trust and obedience allows the Holy Spirit to work in and through them so that they can be overcomers in any circumstance they face. Where natural human loves would cave to bitterness and rage, they are enabled to choose love and forgiveness. When the natural humanity would cling to this life and the advantages of this world would cause one to wither in the face of persecution and threats to one's earthly life, their faith-enhanced vision looks beyond the moment of torture or ridicule or difficulty and sees an eternal crown of righteousness being extended toward them as a reward for their faithfulness. So we can say that grace pilgrims are supernaturally courageous. They're not naturally courageous. They're supernaturally courageous. Remember the apostles? Quite frankly, they were honest enough to record the fact that they were all cowards. They all abandoned Jesus. They all ran. They all fled. And Peter thought he wasn't a coward. Remember that? Lord, you don't have to worry about me. The others may abandon you, not me. I'll be right there. I've got my sword. I'm willing to die with you. And Jesus said, really, Peter? You're willing to die for me? He said, I prayed for you because the devil's going to try to shift you like wheat, sift you like wheat. And he said, in fact, before this night is over and the roaster, the rooster crows, not the roaster, but the rooster. A rooster can be a roaster, but anyway. <laughs> the rooster crows. He said, you're going to deny you even know me three times. And Peter did what he never thought he would do. He cowardly denied Jesus Christ. Three times. But here's the point. God transformed those men into mighty warriors. You see, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not be able to withstand it. Kind of sounds like we're on the offensive, doesn't it? And Jesus began building his church with shocking and glorious power. He burst open the tomb and crushed death's head and marched out alive as the first new creation human, signaling the beginning of the new creation. He sent the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit on and in his disciples with flames of fire, which transformed the cowardly and confused disciples into valiant and unstoppable proclaimers of the good news of the cross of Christ. Most of those early apostles and many of the disciples would lay down their lives declaring their faith. While Rome tried to crush them, the power within them, the Holy Spirit, was steadily making a conquest of thousands of hearts and lives in that old blood-stained empire of Rome. In the end, the persecuted blood-stained Christians would stand as conquerors of Rome. Interesting. And they wouldn't be stained with the blood of their enemies. They were stained with their own blood. 
The story is told that when Constantine called the first church, the second church council, the first was in Jerusalem, but the second church council, the council of Nicaea, that when the church gathered, over 300 bishops gathered from all over the empire, that Constantine walked among them weeping because and touching their wounds because many of them had eyes gorged out, hands cut off, legs cut off. They were mutilated because they'd been through the persecutions of the Roman hatred of Christians. And now for the first time, because of the decree of Malone that he had issued, they were able to come out into the open and not be fearful. You know, it's hard to explain what a grace pilgrim is. So I'm just going to tell you a couple stories in closing to help illustrate it. One from the early church and one from the Old Testament. So let me begin by talking about a story. Remember, we talked about Jesus referring to the church of Smyrna. We're going to go to Smyrna for a few moments and talk about this. In Rome, the early Christians were called godless. You say, why would they call them godless? Well, one of the words that we would, the way we would say it today is atheist. They called Christians atheist. Why do they call them that? Well, it's because they refused to worship all of the pagan gods of the Romans. And so they just said, they're godless. They won't worship the right gods. And the Christians said, we're not godless. We worship the true God and his son, Jesus Christ. But they wouldn't recognize that. And because they refused to worship the the pantheon of gods of Rome and refused to worship the Caesar who claimed to be a god and required sacrifices and incense to be burned to him as a god, they were persecuted. In Smyrna, the Roman governor announced that all had to burn incense to Caesar and swear to him as a god. Now, there were various waves of persecution that came. There would be times when there wasn't persecution and then times where there were. This is around the 150s AD. So it's about 50 years after the apostle John had died. And so in Smyrna, the Roman governor announced that all had to burn incense. And since it was known that to declare oneself a Christian meant you would not recognize any of the Roman gods or the emperor as God, the governor had declared that any Christian who claimed to be a Christian who would not renounce their faith, would be executed in the arena. In the arena in Smyrna, crouching low and hugging the sand was a lion circling a young man who stood erect in the middle of the crowded arena. The lion was circling ever closer to, as the crowd watched without making a sound. From the imperial box in the grandstands, the governor looked on with a grin. He called out to the young man. Here's what he said to him. Come now, shouted the governor. You are young and a lifetime awaits you. It is not too late. Some of your friends have just sworn the oath to Caesar. I will remove the beast if you will do it, do the same. Swear the oath and you will live. In other words, burn incense to him as a god. The young man shook his head no and stood his ground. As the lion crept nearer, the lion paused for just a moment and then pounced. In an instant, the two were intertwined as the animal tore at the man's flesh with powerful swipes of his claws. But soon the lion found 
his throat and closed his massive jaws and the young man went limp. The crowd cheered. They began to chant, death to the godless, death to the godless. Then one of the leaders shouted, he was only a follower. Another joined in and added, we want the leader, Polycarp, the bishop, the leader and teacher of these Christians. We want Polycarp. The crowd roared their approval and chanted louder, death to the godless, death to the godless, death to Polycarp. The governor, upon hearing the crowd chanting like this, called a contingent of soldiers and said, leave now, go find Polycarp, the leader of the Christians, and bring him here to the arena. And so they left to find him. Polycarp was an elderly man in his 80s. He had been a disciple of the Apostle John. That's how close he was to the time of Jesus. He had been born in AD 70, the year that Jerusalem was destroyed. And he had been discipled by John in his younger years until John died somewhere close to the year 100 AD. He was eating dinner when the soldiers arrived at his door and burst in. And of course, they expected him to run for his life, to try to flee. But he just simply greeted them and calmly said, when they told him what they were about to do, he just simply said, God's will be done. He asked that food and drink be brought for the soldiers to refresh themselves and then requested of them at least one hour before they chained him and took him to the arena that he might be able to pray. Amazed at Polycarp's fearlessness and in deference to his age, the soldiers granted his request. And while they ate and drank, Polycarp began to pray. And you must remember the ancient Christians always prayed out loud. So he sat and began to pray. He prayed for every Christian he could remember and all of the Christians in his church in the area and the province of Smyrna. He prayed for the church around the world. He prayed for them to hold steady under persecution. He prayed for everything he could think of to pray for. And he didn't pray for one hour. He prayed for two hours because the soldiers were afraid to interrupt him. And he prayed for two solid hours while they continued to eat and drink and listen to him pray. He prayed for the pagans to come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then finally, he presented himself to be chained and led to the arena. When Polycarp was brought into the arena, the governor said to Polycarp, noting how old and elderly he was, he said, if you will simply swear by Caesar and turn to the small huddle of Christians we have here in the arena, here with you, and say to them, take away the godless, I will let you live. That's all you got to do, and I'll let you live. Polycarp, instead of turning to the Christians, turned to the pagan crowds in the arena and waved his hand this way at them and said, take away the godless. The crowd didn't like it. They roared their disapproval at him calling them godless because they figured they had many gods. The governor continued, have respect for your age, Polycarp, and swear, and I will let you go. Reproach Christ. 
Polycarp turned to the governor and boldly declared, listen to what he says, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The governor urged him again, swear by the fortunes of Caesar. But Polycarp replied, since you vainly think that I will swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you say, and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. That kind of concludes the matter, doesn't it? The governor was becoming angry. He threatened him. I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp replied, call them. For we cannot repent from what is better to what is worse. But it is noble to turn from what is evil to what is righteous. Then the governor threatened Polycarp with fire. But he responded to the governor. You threaten me with a fire that burns an hour and is soon quenched. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment stored up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you want. Finally, the governor sent a herald to the middle of the stadium to announce that Polycarp continued to confess his faith as a Christian. The crowd shouted for Philip, the Asiarch, who was one of the keepers of the lions, to send a lion against Polycarp. But he refused to do so for respect of his age. Then they shouted for Polycarp to be burned. Well, that was decided upon, so they prepared a prior, and Polycarp removed his outer clothing and personally climbed up on the prior. And what the normal custom was is that at that point, because when the fire was started, people would, uh, their bonds, if they were tied with ropes, they would be burned and they would come running out of the flames. They would take them and they would literally nail them through their hands to the post. When they got ready to nail Polycarp to the post, Here's what he said to the young men who were about to nail him. He said, leave me like this. He who gives me the strength to endure the fire will also give me the strength to remain on the prior without your security from the nails. So they did not nail him, but merely tied him up. Polycarp then prayed a long prayer out loud, thanking God for counting him worthy to be numbered with the martyrs and to share in the cup of Christ which leads to resurrection in both soul and body and the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. Then they lit the prior. And when they lit it, it sprang up quickly. The fuel was dry and it sprang up quickly. The flames came up quickly. But to the Romans' amazement, the fire would not go near Polycarp and merely formed an arc around his body several feet away but would not touch him. The Romans did not know what to make of this. After waiting and waiting, expecting the fire to burn in, and it never did, they finally ordered for an executioner to stab Polycarp, which he did. And a great quantity of blood came out of Polycarp and extinguished the remaining flames as Polycarp simply bled to death. The Romans threatened Polycarp with beast and fire. But in the end, his faith was stronger than their threats. Nothing could make him turn loose, of, uh, take, turn loose of his hold on this faith in Christ. He was a grace pilgrim to his last mortal breath. 
I believe that such grace pilgrims will be needed again in the decades ahead. The church was born in the blood of Christ and was watered on the blood of the early martyrs. And the word martyr means witness. It will reach the finish, the church will reach the finish line, having run a good race by the blood of the faithful saints, many of whom will once again be martyrs or witnesses. Now, buried deep in the Old Testament of the meta narrative of salvation is one more story, which I want to tell you in closing here, that really defined what a grace pilgrim is and the distinction between them and those who are not. And you will know the story, so I will only need to tell you the quick overview. This comes out of the story of the uh, moment when they were getting ready to leave Mount Sinai at the, uh, as Israel had been formed into a nation by God. And they had just celebrated the second Passover. And when God had finished organizing them into a covenant nation with himself as their king, he then had them break camp and head for the promised land. And he gave them the assurance that he would give them the land ahead of them. Now, you remember what Moses did when they got close to the promised land. He chose 12 valiant men, each from different tribes, and he sent them in to scout out the land and to lay out a plan of how they should take conquest of the land. You remember that these 12 men returned, and they came back carrying huge clusters of grapes and honey and showing that the land was indeed very productive and a great place that you'd want to live. But 10 of those men came back all afraid and frightened and discouraged because they had seen the sons of Anak, which were giants. These were likely descendants also of Nephilim that had been bred after the flood. And the sons of Anak, the giants, they realized, they said, we look like grasshoppers to them. And they thought of us like grasshoppers. They were monstrous. And they kept saying to the people, we can't go in and take the land. Now, you got to understand they had seen God part the Red Sea. They'd seen God bury the Egyptians. They'd seen God use a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night. They had heard his voice from Mount Sinai. They had watched him feed them from the skies with manna. They had seen water come from a rock when Moses commanded it. They had seen all of that, and God had declared to them that he was their people. He would be their special possession, and he would fight their battles for them. And yet, with all of that, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? They were scared of a few giants, and they weren't going to go. But you remember there were two men. One was named Joshua. His original name was Hoshea. Moses renamed him as a kind of a prophecy of Messiah. He renamed him Yahshua, which we pronounce it Joshua, but it's Yahshua, which, by the way, is the name that was given to the Messiah later, Jesus. But he renamed him Yahshua. And Yahshua and Caleb were two of those 12 scouts, and they came back and said, no, we can take the land. Yeah, there's giants there, but they have no protection. We have a God who can do anything. He is with us. We will destroy them. Don't worry about it. But the people didn't listen to them. They listened to the ten who were giving a bad report and all pessimistic and looking at the circumstances going, oh, this is terrible. Our God isn't very big. He can't handle this. And they got so angry 
at Joshua and Caleb who were just shouting at them, you've got to trust God, that we are told that they were planning on stoning Moses, Aaron, and Joshua and Caleb. We can't have these guys. They're trying to get us in trouble. They're trying to destroy us. They, they think that trusting God's enough. You ever know any people that kind of talk that way in the church? It's not just enough to trust God. You've got to kind of trust your own. No, 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 no. It was at that point that God himself stepped in and suddenly the cloud of God's glory appeared at the tent of meetings. And instantly God struck the ten spies who were giving a bad report with a plague and they died instantly on their feet and fell to the ground. And Moses had to intercede for the people to keep God from destroying all the people. God then told the people that they were now sentenced to 40 years of incarceration in the wilderness because of their faithlessness. But there would be two. Joshua, Yahshua, and Caleb. And they would live through that 40 years incarceration and they would be able to go into the promised land. None of the others would get the promised land they had left Egypt hoping to inherit. Now, here's a principle that comes out of all this. God is greater than giants to the wholehearted grace pilgrims. Giants are bigger than God for the half-hearted. The grace pilgrim sees God in reality correctly. And there are going to be many giants in the decades ahead in the wilderness of end time. How will you and I see God in relation to them? Will we be Joshua's and Caleb's? Or will we be like the ten? I believe that Joshua and Caleb are ultimate examples of Old Testament grace pilgrims. Let me give you the reason why as we kind of close this story. There's a lot said about Joshua, Yahshua. And there's a lot said about Caleb. But I want to focus in on Caleb for a moment. We know Joshua was a great man. And he, he lived through that time and led the children of Israel into the promised land and was a great warrior still, even though he was in his elderly years. But notice what happens five years after they start the conquest of Canaan. They go in, they start conquering it all. Five years later, they're still in the process of conquering the promised land. And here's a scene that happens that's recorded in Joshua 14. It says, a delegation from the tribe of Judah, led by Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, came to Joshua at Gilgal. Caleb said to Joshua, remember what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, about you and me. So they were both part of this 12. He says, you and I were there. And he said this about you and me when we were at Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land of Canaan. I returned and gave an honest report. But my brothers who went with me frightened the people from entering the promised land. For my part, notice these words because you're going to see them again. I wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. So that day Moses solemnly promised me the land of Canaan on which you were walking will be your grant of land and that of your descendants forever. Now notice something. They, he had scouted out a particular part of the land. The spies had divided up and it was a hill country of 
great cities and all that. And, and Moses just promised him, I'm just going to see to it that that's your grant of land forever. Because, notice the because, you wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. That's Moses talking to Caleb. Now Caleb says, now as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive and well as he promised for all these 45 years since Moses made this promise. Even while Israel wandered in the wilderness. So he was incarcerated with them along with Joshua for 40 years. Now they are five years into the conquest. Today I'm 85 years old. Think about that. He's 85. I am as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey. And I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. That's an incredible statement. This man is 85 years old and he's as strong as he was when he was 40 years old. And he was chosen when he was 40 years old because he was a mighty warrior. And he says, I'm still a mighty warrior. I can still fight just like I could before. Wow. So give me the hill country that the Lord promised me that day. And then he tells him something about that hill country. Notice this. You will remember that as scouts, we found the descendants of Anak, the Anakites, living there, and their cities were large and fortified. What's he talking about? He's talking about the giants. <laughs> he says, you know, the people were, wouldn't go in because they were scared of giants. We weren't scared of the giants. I've been waiting 45 years to conquer some giants. And he says, and now I'm going to go kick some giant. You know what? And he said, <laughs> he said, give me that hill country and I'll go clear them out. But if the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land, just as the Lord said. So Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave Hebron to him as his inheritance. And notice what the result was. Hebron still belongs to the descendants of Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Why? Because he wholeheartedly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. That's a grace pilgrim. That's a grace pilgrim. Let me point out, how wholehearted are you in your relationship with God? You have the opportunity to be a grace pilgrim if you're wholehearted. Paul told us that these things occurred as examples that keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. He told us that these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And I believe the fulfillment of the ages has come on us. We are now down to the last few decades and we need to be saturated with God's grace because we are channels of God's grace and our children need to observe it in our lives as we overcome. The Apostle Paul, in talking about Christians going through persecution and trials and hardships in Romans chapter 8 finally asked this question. He said, what then shall we say in response to all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? So here we are. We're facing all this persecution. We're facing all these trials. We're facing even death itself. He says, what should we say about this? Well, he says we should say, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You know something? That's Paul saying to us, the church, you need to look at what God has done and act accordingly. What has he done? He's done the most powerful thing that's ever been done. His son 
covered all of our sins. His son went into the grave, crushed the head of death, marched out victorious, and declared, because I live, you shall live also. He said, if he's done that, then we should trust him. Because if he would give us that, he'll give us everything else we need, right? Everything else we need. In fact, I got, I got so encouraged by that, I wrote a 1400 B.C. version of this for the Israelites. This is what they should have been saying. Here it is. What then should we understand from all the things we've seen God do for us? Should we not realize that if God is for us, there is none who can stand against us or hinder us? He who parted the Red Sea, who drowned the armies of the most powerful nation on earth under its waters, who provided us his law and his provision and protection all through the wilderness. He who has made his dwelling among us and calls us his very own possession and declares that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. How will he not also, along with all this already given, graciously give us everything we need? You know who was saying that? Yahshua. And Caleb. But everybody else was saying, giants, oh no, bad times, furnaces, bad times, oh no. Where have you got your eyes? We end by looking at what Jesus says about the end times. In talking about the great tribulation period and the warning that the angels give, it says there is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. But then notice this. Because of this mark of the beast, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, that's the church, who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. These are not people who got saved because they missed the rapture. This is the church remaining faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. I wish I had time to just preach on that. What kind of blessing do you think that is? That's an eternal blessedness glorious blessedness. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Why? Because they're going to get eternal blessing. And then finally, Revelation 12 and 7 that really happened in the same time frame, so I put them together because Revelation is not written chronologically. It said, then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last. Salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, has been thrown down to earth. He is the one who accuses the saints before God day and night. But notice this yet they, the saints, overcame him and defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they did not love their earthly lives so much that they were afraid to die wow that's their key then one of the elders asked me these in white robes who are they and where did they come from I answered sir you know the answer and he said these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. Tribulation saints. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Wow. These future 
grace pilgrims have walked through the wilderness of end times and do not even have the smell of smoke on them. They're standing in white robes, praising God in glory. So, they are safe and sound because they're drenched in God's grace. So, the question for us as we close is, will you be among them? Will I be among them? You know, I know it's difficult in these days not to just preach feel-good messages. But that's not what we need, folks. We need messages that will help us to be staunch in our faith. If you remember the staunch series we taught a few months ago. Because the time is coming when only the staunch, those who endure to the end to be saved, are going to be saved. So we need to raise up our children to be grace pilgrims because they see us being grace pilgrims. They need to experience grace through us. They need to see us giving grace to others even when we're mistreated. Is that easy? No. It's hard. Is it natural? No. It's supernatural. It takes the supernatural grace of God to do it. And you have it. So don't let it lie dormant. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have your hand on your church, your people. I feel so incredibly blessed to be a part of this family of believers, so many of which are true grace pilgrims. And I see it in their lives. But Lord, we want to answer that calling more than ever because we realize that the key central characteristic is to be wholeheartedly obedient to you because we love you and we prize pleasing you above all else. Even if it costs us our life, we will be like Polycarp and say, what are you waiting for? Because all you're going to do is give me a hello Jesus and I can't wait. So Lord, teach us to live with our eyes focused on reality, not on the illusions of this world. Make us overcomers because we are saturated with your grace as we are purveyors of your grace. Make us grace pilgrims. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.